How many of you guys here hate injustice? That's uh, so what I figured, like three hands went up. You guys, maybe you missed the question, okay? How many of you guys hate the terrible, horrible, tragic things that happen in the world where children are exported and wars happen and things are stolen and people are hurt and stuff falls apart and people are suffering and people are dying and people are starving and things aren't what they should be and they are rich and they are poor and there's racism and all the injustices that are up on it. How many of you guys hate them? Okay, you should hate them. Okay, you ought to hate injustice. Injustice is the result of evil and sin that is infecting our world. Now, how many of you guys here are super, super, super glad that the scriptures reveal that we serve a good God that also hates injustice? I'm super thrilled about that, right? The God we serve and has been revealed to us hates injustice. How many of you guys are super, super, super thrilled that God not only hates injustice, but he has promised in his word all the way through the redemptive story and especially in Revelation and some of the New Testament writings that he will, will, undo all injustice uh, by the end of this story, that every injustice will have been judged, satisfied, and undone. I'm glad. Are you glad? Woo! I'm glad. You know what's really cool about the scriptures? It doesn't simply paint a picture of God undoing evil, undoing injustice, undoing sin, like he's against it and it's against him and he wins in the end. The picture actually painted in scripture is that because God is goodness personified, because God is a force of goodness, that he's not just good, he is absolute goodness, that, listen to this now, evil, sin, Injustice cannot survive in his presence. It's not a matter that he chooses to undo it. It's a matter that by nature, if those things encounter him, they are consumed by him, destroyed in every way. So if God is present, then the, by, by necessity, where injustice reigns, where sin is present, where there is evil, it will, by definition, be consumed. Who's happy about that? I'm happy about that. Woo! So, we're in the book of Romans, right? The book of Romans, Paul is writing it to the church in Rome. He is unpacking the intricacies and beauty of his redemptive story, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is showing us who we are, who he is, how we relate. And, and Paul is writing this book, preparing the way for him to make a transition from Antioch to Rome and move his headquarters there. He's writing into a church that is a Jewish and Gentile, a good mix, not just one or the other, or one primary, one secondary, because of some circumstances in the church in Rome, they are really on the same page, and I'm not on the same page, uh, you know, in the same boat. So they are together, and he's writing into this context, right? And he's unpacking the gospel, and what did we find so far in the book of Romans, right? Super exciting chapter one, the Gentile people that did not know God, did not want to know God, did not want anything to do with God, did not belong to God, were not the people of God, they behaved very badly, right? Romans chapter one, because they ignored God, and good news, good news, God hates injustice, he hates sin, he hates uh, evil, 
and he is going to judge it. Chapter 1, he will judge rightly the Gentile pagans. They will be consumed by his judgment. Woo! Who's happy? I mean, look, sin is going sin is, sin is to be consumed. Chapter 2, chapter 2, okay? The people of God who knew God and had the law and had everything and, and, and understood him and, 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 and had relationship with him and, and, and lived with him. Uh, turns out they have the sin disease too. Uh, they behave badly. They have evil and sin as part of their nature. Uh, they are full of injustice. So really good news. God is going to judge that. He's going to consume that. It's going to be taken care of. He's going to undo justice. The people of God, they will be consumed, destroyed, and undone. Woo! Who's excited about that? <laughs> because you just figured it out, didn't you? I don't think there's a third category. <laughs> I think we're all in those two categories. So this is the dilemma, isn't it? See, we shout and scream up front, God is good, he undoes injustice, he consumes sin and evil. Who's excited? Who wants a God that doesn't do that? Nobody wants God not to be good, not to consume injustice, not to judge evil, not to judge unrighteousness. Trouble is we are by nature, when found in this dilemma, unrighteousness, full of sin, evil, and are deserving of God's righteous judgment, which is essentially, as soon as we encounter him, we will be consumed. Mm. The dilemma that we have faced in the early part of the book of Romans is that uh, we are presented with God's promise to be just, his promise to destroy evil, his promise to consume unrighteousness and injustice, while simultaneously we are, we are presented with his promise to be faithful to the human race, to give them a future, though undeserving of it, to rescue them, to protect them, right? The trouble is that those two stand in conflict of one another because if he excuses us to give us a future, he undoes himself as goodness that consumes sin and he's no longer the God we just cheered about. If he does what he does because he's that good and he just consumes it, then we have no future. And so then his promises seem to be misplaced. Did he not know that we would not be able to live up to his righteous decrees? So he made promises hopeful in our abilities that failed us. Now he can't remain faithful. Or is there something else? And then we landed in Romans chapter 3 verse 21, 22, 23. And what did we discover there? Remember we sat in the doctor's office? You're going to be consumed by God's goodness and righteousness. Sorry about that because you have sinned and you are deserving of his judgment, but there is a solution, the death that is inevitable for you and I, soul death and all, because of our sin, there is a solution. We opened the folder and what did we read? We read this, the righteousness of God, not of us. Thank goodness for that, isn't it? Nothing found in you, nothing you gotta live up to, nothing you gotta pull off, nothing you gotta do. It's not a righteousness of your own that you weren't aware of. It is a righteousness, the righteousness of God and of God alone, not of us. The righteousness of God, right, right? Found in Jesus Christ. It's not found in another system, another process, another de declaration, another set of rules, another set of things to attain. It is found in a person. It is found in Jesus. 
that is by faith, it is not by behavior, it is not by the law, it is not by a system, it is by trusting in God's goodness and God's redemptive story, the righteousness of God, not us, that is in Christ, a person for us, not against us, by faith, not by the law, for who? For the Gentiles, despite their insane reality and pagan behavior, they will not be excluded from this gift. It is for all and the Jewish people, despite their unfaithfulness, having the things of God, they will not be forgotten. The Gentiles not excluded, the Jews not forgotten, but for all who believe, who trust that God's solution is all you need. That's what we discovered last weekend. That was exciting. Because we're like, oh, there's something here. But it's a little tough, isn't it? Because you're like, hold on, that sounds amazing, but how does it work? Does it work? How do I get to be a recipient of it? Can I be? How, how, how costly is it? How costly is it? So grab your Bibles. Now we're going to take the folder. We're going to move on. We've got a long folder to get through over the next few years in the book of Romans. And so we're going to work our way through the explanation of page one, everything I just told you. Turn with me to the book of Romans chapter three. We are going to be uh, Romans chapter three, verse 24. And uh, if you are in our Bibles that we provide, it's page 1042, 1042, uh, or in a smart device or the Bible you brought, Romans chapter 3, verse 24. So we ended on verse 24 last week. I'm just repeating this so that we have a quick context again. Here's where we ended last week. And are justified, that's us, those who are uh, found in sin, but through faith engage with Jesus. They are justified. What does justified mean? Declared righteous, declared innocent, uh, uh, moved off of the seat of guilt. To, to justify someone is to declare them just. So we are made right. We are made right. How? When oh, Look at this. By his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, okay? So we also know now that whatever this thing is and how this thing works, it is not costly to us, okay? It is a free gift to us. There is a benefactor uh, of which we will discover had to pay a giant cost. This is not a free gift insofar as its cost. It's not a cheap trinket that someone gives to you. It's free because it's plastic and it'll break in a day. No, this is a precious and an and extraordinarily expensive reality, but it is a gift to you and I sitting across the table. Okay, it is free, we are made right, and this through the redemptive work of Jesus. So here's the question, right? Who exactly is this Jesus? How exactly can he do this work? And what exactly is this redemptive work he did that exactly affected everything you just said in Romans chapter three, verse 21 and 22 and 23? What is this? Fantastic question. And we get to unpack that now at least in its very beginnings. So grab those Bibles. Let's take a look at how this all begins to function. Verse 25, now, coming out of verse 24, just so you know, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There's the context. This is the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What is this redemption? Whom, so Jesus, whom God put forward 
as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Okay, wow, that's a sentence. There's big words in the sentence. Don't you love big words? Uh, so often we read and we, look, oh, we all want to pretend we know what that means. Okay, but we don't, right? Propitiation and, 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 and pushing forward what's going on here. Let's talk word picture for a second here, okay? It says that God has pushed forward someone who Jesus Christ right so the redemptive work of Jesus and Jesus himself whom God has pushed forward onto the table so there is a table here and on the table the table is begging for a solution for a payment to this issue of sin and the payment for sin is either our death, so death pays, is the payment for sin, or hopefully some solution so we don't have to die. But sin demands payment. And actually, sin doesn't demand payment. Righteousness demands payment. And sin has affected a debt. And the payment for debt, for sin, to righteousness is death. Okay? And God has just shifted onto the table something. And what he shifted onto the table, he says, is this. Look here. He, he put forward as propitiation by the blood of Jesus to be received by faith. What is propitiation? It's a big word. Now, why would they use big words? I, I, why can't they just make simple words, okay? When they're using a big word in scripture, they are usually using it because any of the smaller words are limited in their definition. The bigger word captures more in its definition or it focuses a definition a little bit more. So, in its simplest form, propitiation is to satisfy something. It is, the, he, he, put, he put forward on the table something to satisfy something else. You with me? To, as a propitiation, as a satisfaction. Now, the trouble is if we use the word satisfy, if you just, if you just put the word, and, and God put forward a satisfaction, right? The problem with the word satisfy is that it's too broad. Because sometimes you and I, oftentimes, most often, we use the word satisfied not as a payment for debt, but as something that makes us feel good, right? Oh, I ate that filet mignon and I'm so satisfied. Well, you're not actually satisfied. You've overeaten. You feel horrible. You want to throw up. You're not satisfied, but that steak was so satisfying. That's not the kind of satisfying we're talking about here. That is like something that gives you pleasure and satisfies your desires. This is the kind of satisfies that means there was something that was required and I needed something to satisfy that requirement. You could theoretically say I was very hungry and the food satisfied my hunger. That's very different than I was satisfied by the steak. You with me? There was a need and it was met or fulfilled or satisfied by this. That's what the word propitiation means. It is to satisfy. There's more to this word. We'll get to it later. It is to satisfy. So God, who, who, who pushed this onto the table? That's not a trick question, folks, really. You can be confident, okay? It's right there in the Bible. God put something forward. In fact, God put someone forward. 
And that someone, we find out here, is going to satisfy something. So God is putting someone on the table who will satisfy something, and this thing he will satisfy is going to be by his blood. Now we're going to get to the by his blood part in a little while. I'm not skipping it. It's just not where we need to land right now. So we'll get to that. What does the next little part say? This person who will satisfy something, take a look at this, all of this will be to be received by what? By faith, right? So here's what God's saying. I, God, am going to put something on the table, someone on the table who is going to satisfy something very important, okay? What do we need to put on the table? This is my part. I'm going to put this on the table. What do we then put on the table as part of satisfying this debt that we need to satisfy, okay? Faith, interesting, isn't it? When you put faith in it, what is faith exactly? And you, you got some of that in your pocket? Is it, is it, uh, faith, faith, that is, that is your, your righteous acts, right? That's your faith. No, no, that's not it. What is faith? Ultimately, what faith is, is the act of trust of somebody else. I, I believe I have faith in what you just put on the table. So what I'm saying is, my part that I bring to the table is to choose to trust that what he brought to the table is all I'm going to need. Isn't that crazy? He brings it to the table, and my part is I believe that all I need on the table is what he brought, and that I cannot bring anything to the table. That's my part in the story. Because anything I bring to the table is going to be infected by my disease, which is sin. So even my good works that I bring to the table are secretly infected by my wrong motives or other things or needs. And so anything I bring to the table as a little part, It is infected by sin, and what happens to sin when it encounters the goodness of God? It is consumed. It is destroyed. So my good works will be as nothing. And so my part is I bring nothing to the table, and I just trust that since I bring nothing to the table, that's still enough. Is that hard for us humans? Yeah, because we're Americans, and we deserve a vote and we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and we do it, and if we don't, then it's a charity case, and I ain't gonna be a charity case. You see, this is how we think, and we are insane, because we put ourselves in a position where we believe if we don't bring something to the table, then that's not good enough, and what he's saying is, no, 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 this is how this one works. I and I alone bring this to the table. I bring this person, and you simply trust that what I bring to the table is all you're gonna need for your sin problem to be solved. So we have to sit in humility and go, you're saying I'm nothing. Yes. (laughs) But you're something because I'm bringing something to the table for you. So, that's a big deal. Now watch this, watch this. (laughs) Okay. Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness, okay? So what's the dilemma that we've been facing? For God to be faithful in his promises made to give us a future that is not our destruction, God would have to, God would have to excuse our sin problem, which would undo God's righteousness. But what he's saying here is, What you're going to discover as we unpack the realities of what I've just brought to the table is I'm bringing this person to the table as a satisfaction of a debt because if the debt is satisfied, have I excused the debt? 
You don't excuse a debt by satisfying a debt, right? If somebody comes to you and here's a debtor, uh, the, the, the person that is owed a debt and here's the person who has to pay the debt and somebody else comes and they pay your debt for you, was your debt excused? No, it was paid. There's a giant difference. God is not excusing the debt for sin. He is putting a satisfaction on the table, a, a propitiation on the table. And so the natural thing to say next is the reason God did not excuse our sin problem but had to put something on the table or someone on the table to satisfy our sin problem is to demonstrate God as continually righteous. God is not going to become someone that says sometimes I'm going to excuse injustice. Sometimes I'm going to let evil go. Sometimes I'm just, going to, I'm just going to let sin reign. Do you want a God like that? Because if we have that God, then you understand all the promises of him consuming all of sin and all of evil and all of injustice is not true. And worse than that, worse than that, it means that our understanding of his nature that was revealed in scripture, that by nature he consumes his things, these things are not true either. Because if he can hang out with us and just excuse our injustice, our sin, our evil, then he is not by nature goodness personified. So this is what this is saying. He put something on the table so that he could satisfy payment so that the payment to righteousness from us might be satisfied so that his goodness might also remain his goodness and that he can interact with us despite it. Wait, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go take a look. Look at this now. Watch this. So this is so cool. What Paul does next is now speaks into a question that is lingering about God so far in the story. So he's talking about Jesus has just come. He has satisfied this reality of sin. Uh, this is to demonstrate God righteous. Now look at this. Because, this is to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Wow, okay, so take a look at this. This is so cool. Paul is now directly dealing with a question that lingers in everybody's mind. If God is so righteous and he is so good and he never overlooks injustice and he never overlooks unrighteousness and he never overlooks sin, then he is gonna destroy it all. Why hasn't he? I mean, why hasn't he? We say God's gonna do, do all this, but is there not injustice in the world today? Where is God in that? Where is God in that? Wait a minute, let's go back, let's go back. Did God not excuse a bunch of stuff in the Old Testament? Come on, be honest, you, if you've read it, when people start reading Genesis and onward, I, I, I brace for emails. I got an, I got an email recently. Uh, Renaud, I, I, just, I just read the part where a Abraham sold his wife to the Pharaoh um, and God seemed okay with it. I'm just saying, it's super weird. And then like God had to get her back and the Pharaoh gave him a bunch of animals because he took his wife back that he sold to Pharaoh. So, so here's what it seems God is doing. You go ahead and sell your wife to Pharaoh and then I'll take her back from Pharaoh and then Pharaoh will feel sorry and give you a bunch of animals. Well done for selling your wife. Does that sound right? Oh, God is... Goodness personified, he never, ever ignores injustice. Have you read about Moses? Do you know what King David did? 
King David had an affair with a woman and so he wouldn't have to face it. He sent her husband to the front lines of war and told the other guys to make sure he dies and if he doesn't, to kill him. Hmm, that sounds awesome. Yay, King David. And God says of King David, he was a man after my own heart. Yeah, he excuses injustice all day long. I could go on. We could talk about a bunch of other guys, uh, other ladies in the Old Testament and then our world today. So the question is, if God is goodness personified and he's put on the table a propitiation, a satisfaction for the payment of sin, then up to now, how is it that he has been an excuser of sin? And Paul says, no, 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 no. No, this is showing his righteousness because what you have perceived as an excusing of sin has not been an excusing of sin. It has been a forbearance toward sin until now. So then the big question, isn't it? What does forbearance mean, right? Dictionary definition of forbearance. This is so awesome. Okay, forbearance. First definition in the dictionary. It is to refrain from something. Okay, that's just the simplest forbearance to refrain from something. So there is something that someone is going to do that in this case God is going to do that he refrains from, he waits on. Dictionary definition number one. Dictionary definition number two, next in line, okay. It says it is a patient endurance. Okay, so you know when you get to patience, you're showing patience to your children, for example. They're doing the thing and you are being patient with them. And then what do you say after a while when it doesn't stop? I have run out of patience, okay? That's where forbearance comes in, okay? When you're out of patience and patience moves from being patience to being patient endurance, I am enduring you in my lack of patience. Does that make sense? Then you are in forbearance. So you can tell your kids from now on, when I get to forbearance, you understand the next level is your destruction. So you got... You got regular, then you got me being patient with you, then you got me moving beyond patience into forbearance, and then right after forbearance, you end. Okay, so you can now tell them that gift from me. I am being forbearant with you. It is a patient endurance. Now, it gets better. Guess what the very next definition is? The abstinence from enforcing a right that you have. Forbearance, the abstinence of enforcing a right that you have. You have the right to enforce something. So the word enforce gives you the picture there, right? Not to get something, to enforce something. Someone has done something that has violated in some way something you have the right to enforce and you are abstaining from enforcing. And guess what the fourth definition of forbearance is in the dictionary as you travel down. Here it is, okay? When a creditor is indulgent of a person who owes a debt after the fixed date has come and gone for that debt to be paid. So I owe a debt on my house and there's a due date for that debt to be paid. And when the due date comes by, I can't pay the debt. So forbearance is the creditor saying to me, I will give you more time to pay the debt. It is not the excusing of a debt. It is the giving more time for the debt to be satisfied. Are you with me? So here's what it says. God in the past has been 
abstaining from enforcing his right to judge sin and, de- and, and evil and injustice. He has been uh, indulgent towards sin and evil and injustice so that he would give time for those who owe the debt of death to pay the debt for injustice, sin, and evil so that it might be satisfied so that he won't destroy them. That's what he's been doing. So you know how you sometimes, I bet you do, because I do, you look at the world today and you go, where is God? Look at all this evil. How can God allow this? How can God allow that person to get away with that? Or that army to get away with that? Or that horror to occur in that continent? How can God stand by and watch as sin ravages people, as injustice happens? Be very, very careful of taking that road too far because you know why God is forbearant with that? Because at one point you were part of that as was I. And if he wasn't forbearant then we would be dead too. His forbearance is the greatest gift you and I have that he waited long enough for us to engage in the discovery of his redemptive work so that we might be saved. So you see, he is forbearing today with the horrors of injustice, not because he's planning to excuse them, not because he's gonna let them go, not because anyone will get away with anything. He will judge all of it, but because he is patiently enduring our insanity to give those who have not yet been saved the opportunity to come to know this person that is the propitiation for our debt. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Now, we're not done yet. Okay, so God, check this out. Here's the cool part. This is what God essentially has done. God is goodness personified and he will consume all evil and sin and injustice. We are injustice personified, sin personified, uh, evil personified because it's a disease in us. So he's going to consume us. We owe the debt of death to him. So he patiently endures us and our insanity to give us time to satisfy the debt except that he knows we can't satisfy the debt. So he waits patiently in our sin so that that he can satisfy our debt for us and pay with the propitiation, the satisfaction of this debt by putting on the table one who will pay for us. He is both the person who is patiently enduring our sin so that we can pay and the one who will pay for our sin since we cannot pay. God is playing the whole story for us and he is the only one that can satisfy any of it. And this is the God we serve and this is the God that is being described in this passage. This is why Jesus is both payment for and a descriptor of God's righteousness and mercy. Now you think this is done, don't you? But we haven't even gotten to the best part. You know what the best part about this entire passage is? The Jewish context because that's where this picture explodes into something beyond your wildest imagination. So listen to this. Remember Paul is writing into a context that is Jewish with Gentile influence and so the Jewish people will have taught many of the Gentiles a lot about the old scriptures and the realities and and how God's story worked. That's how they came to Jesus. In fact, the gospel would have probably been unpacked most often in the Jewish context and in God's whole story because that was where the gospel began in the Jewish context. So the Gentiles will also have some semblance of an idea of how God has been showing himself faithful all along, okay? So let's take a look at how these words play into a word picture that will blow your mind and mine. Watch this, okay? So who is it that we are being 
protected from or what is it that we are being protected from or need to be protected from in our sin? What is it we need to be protected from? We've kind of landed there now. You can say it. It's scary to say, isn't it? We can say it. God. We need to be protected from God. Why? Because God is goodness personified and God consumes evil and we are evil. So who do we need to be protected from? God. If we encounter God, if we encounter his presence, what happens to us by nature? Not because he's mean, not because he's mad, but because he's good. What happens to us? We die, okay? M Moses, can, can I see you? <laughs> if you want to die. I'll tell you what, I'll stick you in a rock, I'll cover you up, and I'll flash by you in a second, and you're going to glow for days. <laughs> Will I have seen you? Not really. What about uh, Isaiah? He encounters the throne room of God. Do you remember what he said in Isaiah chapter 6 when he first encountered God? He fell to his face and he declares, I am a dead man. When we encounter goodness personified, we die. And, and then they had to bring the coal and cleanse his lips and prep him and kind of get, yes, you're going to die, but we can preserve you long enough to survive this encounter. Ezekiel, same deal. He encounters a vision of God's glory. And what does he do? Falls to the ground. I'm a dead man. Yes, we know, we know. Everybody dies when they encounter God because they have sin in them, right? So we know what we need protection from is God himself. But yet God hung out with human beings in the Old Testament, didn't he? I mean, he, he hung out with the people, the Jewish people. So how did he do it? How did he do it? Check this out. This is so cool. God set up layers and layers of protection from his presence so that we can encounter him without encountering him, so that we can be with him without being consumed, without being destroyed. So first thing he does, right, is he tells them to build a box. It's called the ark, right? And he takes the, the declared law of God, the tablets, the laws of God, and he puts it in the box, right? And he puts a lid on the box. It's called the ark. And he says, don't look in the box. See, because what does the law do to us? The law condemns us. It declares us guilty. It, it shows us our sin. And then we are consumed or destroyed, right? So what does he do with the law? He sticks it in a box and he preserves us from it by sticking the box, putting the lid on it. He says this, don't open the box. If you open the box, you die. Don't touch the box. If you touch the box, you die. We all go, God is so mean. No, no, no. It is his goodness personified. The box starts falling, ah, consumed. If that person was not consumed, then God does not consume evil and sin and death. And then God is not good and the whole thing falls apart. So the box becomes the place you hold the sticks far away and you're like, God's, God's in there. We are protected from him. Then you know what he does with the box? The box causes a lot of trouble because people keep dying because they touch it and they see it and things like that. So he tells them, put the box in a tent. Builds the tabernacle. The tabernacle is built with specific instructions and it has layers to it. They are courtyards. You can, you can go in at certain times for certain things and other areas you can. Then in the middle of the tent, he puts a little space and he calls it the Holy of Holies and he veils that space with a thick veil. So he says this, I'm gonna put my law in the box. I'm gonna preside in the box. The box is gonna protect you. It's gonna have a lid on it that protects you from the presence that's in the box that will consume you. Then I'm gonna put a veil in between you and the box and then I'm gonna put a tent around the veil and I'm gonna put a courtyard around the tent and then you can come in the courtyard sometimes you can come in the tent every now and then and here's the deal. You come in the Holy of Holies and the ark is there. You touch the ark, you die. You come in there, you die. You do, you're not ready, you die because my presence consumes what? But, but once a year, for a very particular purpose, you can come into the Holy of Holies. Okay, so check this out. This is so crazy. 
the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant, the residing presence of God with the law hidden under a lid to protect us from its condemnation. Once a year, the high priest and the high priest alone can walk into that space behind the veil. He has to go through a set of preparations because if he doesn't, he dies, that's right. So they actually tie a rope around his ankle because if he goes in and he missed one of the preparations, he dies. And then they can't go in and get him because then they die. So they drag him out by a rope. Legit, this actually happens, right? And so they're like, if you go in and you die, we'll hear the, the, the thump and we'll drag you out, okay? And so that's gonna, that's gonna happen. You know, what, you know what they do in this place? And you know what day they go into this place? On Yom Kippur, it is the day of atonement. Now watch this, this is so crazy, right? So once a year, they take two unblemished animals, animals without flaw, okay? They are usually uh, either sheep or goat. So we, we have both in play. They take two animals, they take one of the animals, and the high priest prays over the first animal and asks God temporarily to take all of the sin of his people and to place it onto that animal. And then they release that animal into the desert to go and face the consequences of carrying sin. They go die alone in the desert, okay? They are exiled from the people of God into the desert to die, okay? We, we call that the scapegoat. That's where that term comes from, okay? So the, the sin is pr- prayed onto the goat. The goat is sent out the goat dies on behalf of the people. The other goat or sheep is taken and slaughtered. It is killed because what is the payment for sin? Death. It is killed and its blood is carried by the priest in all sorts of preparations with the incense floating, with the rope tied around his foot, uh, behind the veil into the presence of God. Does he open the box? Uh Uh-uh. You open the box, you die. Presence of God encountered kills us. So he takes the blood and he pours it onto the lid of the box, the ark. You know what the lid is called? It's called the mercy seat. Its actual name is the mercy seat. Do you know why it's called the mercy seat? Because God's mercy to us is that he protects us from his goodness while we are still sinful. And so he places a gap, a stop gap between his goodness and our sin so that the one place, the one place sinful humanity can encounter holy God without being judged but found in mercy is at the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant when the blood of the lamb is poured onto the mercy seat and temporarily for that year, that payment of death atones for the sin of the people so that they can survive another year without the goodness of God consuming him, creating the space for his enduring patience that is his forbearance of sin so that he can wait until sin can be satisfied not by a lamb temporarily but by one completely. So listen to this. That word picture is all over this passage, isn't it? There is a propitiation given by the blood of the one Jesus who he puts on the table. Guess what? Listen to this. Guess what the Hebrew word for mercy seat actually means? We translate it mercy seat. Do you know what its actual definition is? That which makes propitiation. The mercy seat is not actually called the mercy seat. It's called the seat that makes propitiation, that's satisfied. Because you know why? I told you there was another definition for propitiation, didn't I? Here we are. We're at it now. The other part of propitiation is to substitute. A propitiation is the substitution that satisfies. So God puts forward the substitution that satisfies the debt that he has 
patiently endured so that we might find ourselves free from the debt of sin, which will cost us death so that he might set us free so that we might both be holy and we might be people with a future. But he doesn't do it by excusing our sin. He does it by paying for our sin so that his righteousness is satisfied and his mercy is satisfied and he is both just and merciful. Watch now, we're not done. Here's the last piece. Check this out. Last verse of this passage before we close shop. Look at this, verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When we trust in God's work for us, then he is both just toward our sin, seeing it destroyed, because the one who becomes our substitute takes it on, is judged, faces death, goes through all that, we'll get to that later, and we are released from sin, he is not, but the difference between him and us is we are consumed with our sin, he survives, because he raises from the dead. And this is the Jesus we have on our table. And that is unbelievable. So, who is Jesus? He is our mercy seat. He is the stopgap between God's goodness and our sin. But more than that, he is the one that has taken on our sin. So that instead of creating space for God to be patient with our sin, wait for it now, he has satisfied the debt of our sin. So instead of being bound to a debt that God is patiently waiting for us to satisfy, we are freed from a debt that we could never have satisfied because he, God, put on the table the propitiation, the substitution, the satisfaction of our debt through Jesus Christ who would take on our sin, who would be judged for our sin, who would survive that judgment because he is God himself. God is our righteousness, our justice, goodness personified, uncompromised, will consume all sin, death, and injustice, and yet finds a way to set us free from that debt so that we might have life now and forever in Jesus. Wow. There's so much more. I want to get to it right now, but I can't. So you'll have to come back next week. Let's pray. God, you're so good, so ridiculous. You're so ridiculous. What you've done is unthinkable that you can be both just and the justifier, the one who is righteous and the one who is mercy, the one who fulfills the debt that needs to be paid without excusing sin, injustice, and evil ever so that we might rest in your promise that you will not excuse any injustice ever, that we can rest in where we started this morning, the goodness that you are good, the goodness that you will undo injustice, the goodness that we can count on that, and yet finding ourselves by nature sinful and unjust that you have somehow somehow in your mercy allowed for you to pay for our injustice and our sin so that it might be satisfied so that we might be not slaves to debt for sin but free from fear and sin so that we might live for you and live with you because you Jesus are that which is our propitiation you are our mercy seat where sinful man encounters holy God in mercy, not justice. 
undeserving yet preserving your righteousness. You are ridiculously cool. We love you and we're so grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.